At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, and welcome to Financials Podcast Future Rich. I am your host, Barbara Ginty, and I'm also a CFP, which is a certified financial planner. And I am here today with my guest, Dr. Provost. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm so glad to be here. We are very excited. This is a very anticipated uh, episode here because your specialty is something that we get a lot of questions about, especially when it comes to saving for it and funding it. Um, So you are a fertility doctor. I am a reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist, better known as a fertility doctor. Yep. Yeah, that's the full (laughs) full version. So yeah, if you could introduce uh, yourself to our guests and tell, you have a great background and maybe tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into this and then we could get into some of the nitty gritty. Yeah. So I have have a little bit of a unique background to getting into the field, Um, but to, to be a reproductive endocrinologist, you basically go to medical school for four years and then... We do four years of OBGYN residency. So we're first trained and board certified as OBGYN. So we practice kind of in the general field of OBGYN. And then we do three years of a subspecialty fellowship specifically in fertility and reproductive endocrine issues. So our specialty kind of runs the gamut. I mean, at the core, treating fertility, egg freezing, um, but we also treat endometriosis, fibroids, disorders of the uterus and, and kind of an, a reproductive tracts in general. So that, that's generally where the specialty lies, but it's a seven year. And then you do another uh, board certification in that fellowship. So you do oral boards and, and uh, written boards as well. The school for a very, very long time. I was in school for a little while. Yeah. I, I, before my, my, I, I mentioned my route is a little circuitous because before I went to medical school, I actually had, had done a PhD. So I, I did a PhD first at Cambridge um, in the history and philosophy of science And then went kind of back to medical school um, to start that whole journey. So it was, it was a road for sure. Yeah, that is a long road. Yeah. But it's, uh, you know, it's worth it in the end if you're doing what you love and. Yeah. And how can I just ask, how did you choose to get into the fertility arena? What attracted you to that? 
Yeah. I mean, I was always the kid who kind of, I, I wasn't the kid who knew I wanted to go to med school from the day I was born. And, and a lot, a lot of my colleagues in medical school were, but I knew I liked helping people. I knew I liked solving problems. I loved science. I was a biochemistry major in undergrad, which is kind of a classic pre-med major. Um, but even in medical school, even in, in undergrad, I had applied to medical school but I ended up deferring because I, I had gotten into medical school, but I deferred because I was just so interested in kind of learning more about the field and traveling and seeing more about the setting of kind of how we practice medicine in the United States. Um, when I started medical school, I didn't, I, I, like many first year medical students, I didn't really know what specialty I, I wanted to work in. I knew I loved working in women's health and with women mm-hmm. in general. Um, but as a first year medical student, I did just a observational rotation at a fertility clinic. And I, I still to this day, remember leaving from my first day and and calling my parents and being like, I I know what I want to do now. Um, it, it, it combines my love of science and biochemistry, so much like DNA and genetics going on and all of it. Um, with also just a real, almost like a psychology side of things. There's a lot of counseling involved and ultimately I just loved the patients. I just loved sitting across from people who were they were there because of love. I mean, almost always they're there because they have, their heart is in this. And to be able to take care of patients that are coming from that place is is just a privilege, really. Yeah, no, really special and perfect for our podcast is all for women. (laughs) So we like helping women from a different perspective, but I think that the fertility aspect is something that obviously touches a lot, most women, if not, not all. So our listeners are probably interested in both the egg freezing, which has yeah. obviously gotten a lot more, I would say a lot more mainstream than it had been in the past, or at least it feels like that. It's, it's definitely out in, in the public arena way more than it used to be, which I which I think is good. I, I, I think the more that we educate and understand our kind of reproductive timelines, our reproductive lives, the better. Um, and so it's kind of a, yeah, a soapbox of mine, I guess. Yeah, no, I was like really happy about it. So having lived in New York, it was definitely something that was more at the forefront in, you know, a city where your career is put on the front burner. Um, And then, but it seems like now over the past few years, it's spread throughout the United States to be more on the forefront um, in in other areas as well. So I would say our listeners are probably interested in egg freezing and then also the IVF process, which if you haven't gone through it is actually fairly similar, right? If you're yeah, it, it, it essentially is the same the same process. I mean, the 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 aspect of kind of getting eggs and 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 getting them in the lab is the same. It's it whether you're doing egg freezing or IVF. I think that's a common misconception in patients that are coming to me for egg freezing. Like, no, I'm not doing IVF. I'm egg freezing. IVF specifically means in vitro fertilization, so it means fertilizing eggs in the lab. And obviously, we're not doing that with egg freezing, but we are freezing them right before we get to that point. So the whole process up until that point is is really the same. Yeah. Having been through it, I learned that, but I also thought it was different until, because there wasn't just a lot of data about it. Um, So maybe we could start with some of your most, because you do this for a living, um, common questions that you get on the process. And then we have a lot of listener questions um, as well. I think, you know, probably the biggest thing that I get is is almost backing up a step from, from even doing egg freezing is kind of why people should be even caring about egg freezing and just a little bit of education about reproductive timelines and what happens for women as we kind of move through our reproductive years. It's something that I had the, I guess, privilege of hearing when I was a resident in my early thirties, because I, because I went to, um, 
grad school first, I was turning 30, right? When I was starting OBGYN residency. And I still this day, I mean, remember kind of sitting in lectures talking about egg counts and, and how, how they fall and fertility and how it starts falling in your 30s, moving into your 40s. I mean, it made me sick to my stomach almost. You, I would sit there and be like, this is uncomfortable. I don't like hearing this. I'm sing, you know, I don't have children. This is hard to hear. Um, but in retrospect, I view it as incredibly empowering to have that knowledge. So I think it's important, even if it is uncomfortable, to kind of have these conversations. And the basic concept of all of this is that as women, we're born with all the eggs that we're ever going to have. Ironically, we've lost more eggs before we ever go through puberty than we, we've had. So we, when we were like six months what? old, yeah, when we're like six months of development, we have about six million eggs. By the time we're born, we have about a million. By the time we have our first period, we have about 300,000 eggs. That's a steep then, decline. It's, yeah. So fertility from peaks at about age 22, believe it or not. I mean, when most of us are trying very hard not to get pregnant. Is, it's like is when our, your body's like, let's get pregnant. <laughs> yes, it's age 22. But the good news, the good news is that from 22 to about 32, it stays pretty constant, that high yeah. fertility rate. And so fertility for most women between 22 and 32 is, is very good. Okay. There are some very early changes that start happening around age 32 to of age, about age 34, 35. From about age 35 to 36 to age 42 is when for most women, we see the steepest decline. You can't predict it for an individual woman, but if we're looking kind of on a population standpoint, that's where we see the biggest changes. When we talk about things like IVF success rates, if we've got a patient under 35 per embryo that we're looking at, for example, we're seeing like 55, 60% live birth rates. Okay. Over age 42, we're starting to drop below 5%. We were to Yeah. So we so, go from about 55 to 60% under age 35 okay. to less than 5% over age 42. That's unbelievable. It's, yeah, it's dramatic. And it, the, I mean, these are the curves that you, we kind of watch. Basically, so like, it's not like even a curve. It's like a cliff. Like your, cliff. Body, your body just goes right off a cliff at a certain point. It does in a way. And, and you don't want to, it's, it's really hard because we don't want to be fatalistic about things. Right. But ultimately, the reproductive life, it's not a good story. It doesn't end well for anybody. I mean, we ultimately, as women, all eventually run out of eggs and go through menopause. And for most women, that's between 45 and 55. Okay. Um, and so if you are one of those women where it's closer to 45, that, that curve can be moved up significantly and that, that egg pool can drop sooner than many women are, when, when many women are still looking at trying to reproduce. Yeah. I mean, I think having the data, I'm a big fan of having data and like, I knew, so from anything you read, because I feel like they don't put a lot of this information out there and it's not that easy to ascertain mm -hmm. it. I mean, I think it's getting better. But 35 is what I was always thought was old, but not knowing, I mean, that's a very big difference from like 55% or 50% to five. And, and here's where, and this is where this kind of all comes into play. And, and, and as we talk about like egg freezing and IVF, it, it's not that women in their mid forties can't get pregnant because you know, you can listen to me talk about it, but I know someone who was 44 and had a baby, like this right. is possible, this happens. The problem is when we look at assisted reproductive technology, what I do for a living, mm -hmm. so much of it is based on trying to get you to ovulate more eggs each month. And uh, so I become less able to help you over age 42. Right. And But when, when we're talking about reproductive planning, when we're talking about making things probable in life, it is important. It's an important part of the conversation. Um, 
two things happen as we move through our reproductive years. One is that we have a decline in the number of eggs. Um, and, and when we're talking about managing our own fertility, we have a few, we have a number of things that we can do to test for the number of eggs that we make. Um, you'll often hear of a hormone called AMH or anti-mullerian hormone. Yes. That was one of the questions. That was one of the questions. Perfect. So AMH is a hormone that's made by the little granulosa cells, the early follicles in our ovaries. Um, and is, is kind of a proxy for how many eggs we have in there. The more of that hormone producing, we're producing the more eggs that we have and the fewer eggs that we have, the lower that hormone gets. Got it. Um, you can do a, you can look at similarly by looking at ovaries on ultrasound um, and kind of seeing how many follicles we have. So from this pool of eggs that we have in our ovaries each month, what happens is that you pull out a group of eggs and you put them out in little follicles in your ovaries to be candidates, to be the one that gets chosen. The number of eggs that we put out each month as a woman is a function of our overall egg pool. So the more eggs we have, the more we feel comfortable putting out there each month. As that number drops, we start conserving the number of eggs that we put out there each month. So when we look at AMH, it's a way for me to kind of predict for a patient how many eggs she's probably putting out there each month. Okay. Very importantly about all these tests, they say nothing about the quality of the eggs. And that's the other thing that changes as we move through our reproductive years is that the quality starts to decline. We keep looking for a test as the field for egg quality, but we don't have one. There is no, there is no egg quality test. The only thing in multiple studies that has been associated with egg quality is age. We know it declines with age. Um, but yeah, if I can figure out the test, we keep, we thought AMH early on might be an egg quality test, but it is not as a pure quantitative, it's a quantity test. How many eggs do you have? So I have a question. So for women who are listening to this, who are now terrified or don't be terrified. (laughs) Yeah. You just are learning this information. And I know personally, a lot of friends that are considering egg freezing in the moment. And I'm sure we have listeners that are considering it. Is it, does it make sense? to like go get your AMH checked so you have a better barometer? So I think when we talk about AMH, we have to be very careful and we have to really understand what it's telling us. So it is a good egg count test. We don't know when you get a single egg count test, how that's changing. It's one point in time. And I can't predict from that. We don't have predictive models yet to say like, if my AMH is two today, what it's going to be in six months. So, right. or if it's low, whether it was higher before in my life, or am I just someone that has a lower egg count genetically my whole yeah. life. And it is very important to understand that AMH does not predict live birth. Okay. okay? It doesn't a, a predict your ability to get pregnant. Why? Because it's not an egg quality test. It doesn't right. say whether those eggs that you have are good or not. So it doesn't tell me if your AMH is high or low, whether or not you can get pregnant. And that's been, there was a huge study in JAMA, uh, Journal of the American Medical Association. There's been a lot of studies out there to, to just say AMH is not a good egg qu- quality test. It doesn't predict pregnancy. It's really important because I, I see sometimes out there with egg freezing, people using AMH as kind of a scare tactic. Like your AMH is low, like you won't be able to get pregnant. Okay. But it is important because it predicts how many eggs you can get from an egg freezing cycle. And okay. if that number is low right now, then we can assume that at some point in the future, it would be lower than it is. It just says that I can't get as many eggs if I give you medicine to try to freeze your eggs. And because of that, when we're starting to play numbers games in trying to get more eggs from you to get better chances at pregnancy down the line, it it does have some effect on kind of how effective we can be with helping you get pregnant. Okay. So that's not like a 
in my mind, I was like, oh, just get your AMH and then you have a better idea. So do you, would you say that for people who are concerned about having a child in the future, who maybe aren't partnered or not ready to have a baby for, you know, whatever reasons, do you think, do you like egg freeze? Like, do you think that's a good path to go down? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's a, a great option that we have and that we've had now in the last few years that really wasn't out there. Egg freezing was experimental, believe it or not, until like 2015. Oh. Um, and so we were doing it as fertility specialists, but mainly in the setting of cancer patients or specific okay. scenarios in which we, you know, we're doing it kind of a non, a non-approved way. But um, since 2015, it's been out there and available socially as for whatever that connotation means exactly. But um, I do, I do think it can be an excellent option for women as long as they're counseled well on kind of what that means for their own fertility and, and that's important to understand is that we don't have all the data on kind of what a group of eggs means in terms of a future fertility for someone. Right. Because if the eggs are frozen, the difference with the IVF is it's not fertilized. So you're just freezing the actual egg. So then it, they would have to, the process afterwards then to have a live baby would be you'd unfreeze them and then. Yeah. So basically what the, we can talk through the kind of general process. So the, the, the concept is that each month you as a, a woman have put out a group of eggs in each ovary. And what we do is we give you injections of the same hormone that your brain usually sends to get just one of those follicles to grow at a higher dose so that we try to get that whole group to grow. Um, that hormone is called follicle stimulating hormone, FSH. So we give you injections of FSH for about two weeks on ultrasound and with blood work, we watch those follicles grow. And at the end of about two weeks, you do a 20 minute ultrasound procedure under anesthesia where we, we suck the fluid out of the follicles that we're walk, that we've been watching in on the ovaries. And then we look for eggs. At that point, we see how many of the eggs are mature and we freeze them for egg freezing. That's, that's the process. Um, there's hormonal swings and there's injections and a lot of stuff that go on, on kind of a patient experience side, but on, on a quick and dirty side, that's, that's basically what the process is for, for IVF. You then take those eggs and fertilize them with sperm and make embryos. So that, that's the difference between IVF and egg freezing. It's a really helpful thing for women who kind of want to put those eggs and freeze them in time. So you can take eggs at 35 or 37 or 38 and then kind of come back and, and use those later, later in life. And then what is so like kind of how that cliff happens with IVF for over a certain age? Are there numbers around like if you froze eggs at 34, I'll use myself at, yeah. at 34, how likely is it that you get a live birth out of a frozen egg? Are there? So this is where it's important to kind of understand predictive models and what we have. If you're talking data and numbers, because we've only been collecting data in the U.S. since 2015 on a social level, we don't have the kind of volume of data that we do about IVF cycles, for example. You have 300,000 some cycles from each year, and we've had data from 20, since 1980s. 90s wow, yeah, on IVF. So we've got years and years of very well collected, very well curated data on embryos, on frozen, you know, on eggs that have been fertilized and made embryos. We have a lot of predictive models for your age, the quality of the embryo, and what your ability to get pregnant is. The data on eggs is not so good because because it's only been since 2015. I mean, the hope is that a lot of these women are never going to need to use those eggs. Right. So yeah. you've got these women that have frozen their eggs, and then you've got a smaller group of them who use them. The data so far seems fairly encouraging that we have. It right. seems like while it's not the same as quite the same as using fresh eggs, we're approaching those kinds of numbers okay. um, from subsequent use. The 
ballpark number that gets kind of thrown around for patients under 35 is about a two to 3% live birth rate per egg that we freeze. So yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Seems low. Well, it does. And that's where we sometimes talk about doing multiple egg freezing egg cycles egg. to try to get those numbers. So it, you know, if you've got 10 eggs frozen, you're getting a 20, 20 to 30% chance of a live birth. If you've got 20 eggs frozen, then you're starting to get into pretty reasonable numbers, you know, 60, 70% chance of live birth. And so that you hear sometimes thrown around like a number of 20 under 35, 20 eggs under 35, you're giving yourself, you know, 60, 70% chance of a live birth. And, and that's, that's where those numbers are coming from is the data okay. saying under 35. About, now keep that in mind, that, that is going to drop as you get older and are freezing those eggs at 37, 38, 39. And so the need for more eggs becomes more important. Yeah, I know. I feel like I'm going to make my to-do list for 2022 to like freeze my eggs again. Because freeze again. <laughs> I did it at 34 and I was like, okay, check the box. But like, I didn't know a lot about it, which is why I'm so excited to do this episode. Yeah. I feel like yeah. I've gotten so many questions since I aired my egg freezing episode. Okay. So some of the, I want to make sure I get to the listeners uh, questions. Yeah. So with, we talked about the, from the uh, patient experience, you're doing a lot of hormone injections. So one question was, do the hormones or medications have any neg- uh, known long-term negative effects? Not that we really know of. And and that's yeah. been something that that does correlate pretty much with IVF. So we have a fair amount of, of data okay. on that that we've been following for quite a while. Uh, there was a, a Danish study that looked at outcomes. There have been some big population studies um, to look at that. And they, the big question was like, is there ovarian cancer risk or breast cancer right. risk or, or uterine cancer risk? We know that there's higher rates of cancer in women that have not had children than some of these reproductive cancers. So there's some association sometimes with infertility itself and higher rates of some of those cancers. But when they've really looked at it, they hadn't, they they didn't identify higher risk of cancers. There's a non-malignant ovarian tumor called a borderline tumor that is not like a metastatic tumor that they've sometimes seen um, very low rates of it in patients that have done IVF. That's been the only thing that some of these studies have have kind of teased out on a big population standpoint. But I think the overwhelming evidence so far has been that it's pretty safe long-term in terms of doing these medications. Okay. And then using expired drugs. So for women going through multiple rounds where they're trying to I'm assuming that's where that question is coming from, that they are doing multiple yeah. rounds or keeping drugs and trying to use them through neck. Because the cycles, if you're doing multiple, could be stretching out. Mm-hmm. So we get a lot of questions about like using expired medications or you know using meds from overseas that aren't coming through the FDA regulations. Yes. And it's, it's hard for me to answer those because they're not regulated, because we've like done studies on expiration of medications. I would call local, your, your pharmacy that's, that's prescribing or that's like sending out your fertility medications to really look at half-lives. And it, the biggest risk there is probably just that it's not as effective, which when you're investing the kind of- I was going to say, yeah, if you're investing money into this, it seems like you'd want to at least not you know cheap out on the drugs. Although there, it is very expensive. It's expensive. I, I, I see where it's coming from because yes. the, the meds are not, inexpensive, are not inexpensive. So it's important there. Yeah. And so that actually leads right me into my next question. So- Egg freezing, freezing options that are covered by insurance. I, you know, I paid out of pocket, wasn't covered under insurance. Are you seeing more insurance companies cover it? I, I've seen more employers cover it as a benefit. Yeah, I, we've seen a huge difference. So 
when, when we're talking about fertility and insurance coverage, there's a couple kind of terminology things I kind of look at. One is there's a few states in the United States that have mandates for insurance coverage, meaning okay. that like if you live in that state and you are working for an employer that has over X number of employees, that that company's insurance plans have to cover IVF services. Um, New York is now a mandated state. It wasn't before. Um, and there's some other ones like Illinois, Massachusetts. But most U.S. states still are not mandated. A countercurrent to that, and I think is good news for fertility patients, is that we're seeing a lot more competition in the workspace and kind of benefits. We're seeing a lot more private employers, including insurance in, in their plans um, to try to you know entice workers to work for them, which is great. Um, so even in Indiana, where I am, which is a non-mandated state, we're seeing a a large change in the percentage of the patients that we're seeing that do have fertility coverage for fertility services, both egg freezing and IVF. Which yeah. Is, so I was going to ask egg freezing versus IVF. So I, cause I feel like IVF was more likely to be covered than just an egg freezing. And- yeah. There's different plans. And I would say still there's, there are some that need like authorization where you need to prove that you've done a certain amount of fertility therapy before you can go through IVF. But we are starting to see plans too, where it, you don't need authorizations for any fertility services or where it covers things like egg freezing, which is fantastic. Yeah. Which is great. Cause out of pocket, I mean, my own experience, I think it was like 11,000 or 12,000 ballpark. And that's Prob- that, that's probably a nationwide kind of median number. Yeah. Now this question, I had not, I've not heard of this and I'm hoping I get the question right, but um, the question was freeze and share. Um, is this common and how do you find out about it? Is that something like you I, share? I'm eggs? not exactly sure where that question, yeah. I oh, don't, okay. I don't know if that's like freezing your eggs and then potentially donating them eventually if someone else needs them. I'm, that would be, that's my interpretation of that question, but I don't, I don't know about that. Can you donate your eggs that you've frozen ultimately to someone else? Yes. That's all regulated by the FDA. You okay. know, local fertility centers, definitely we can we can facilitate those things if, if you did want to donate those eggs to someone that you knew eventually, but I don't exactly know. Okay. I thought this was something like that you would know. And I was like, Mm-mm. I got that question. I was like, hmm, hadn't heard of that, but okay. Mm-mm. How common is OHSS? Yes. So when we're talking about, if you're talking about like going through an egg freezing or an IVF cycle and kind of what are some of the risks, one of the things that as fertility doctors, I'm always keeping in the back of my mind when I'm putting a patient through IVF is ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, which is OHSS. Um, That is when we are doing an egg freezing cycle, it's called controlled ovarian hyperstimulation. We're trying to control you to get a whole bunch of follicles in, in your ovaries, but there's some pathology involved when you get so many eggs and estrogen levels get really high that your capillaries can start getting leaky and you get fluid in your belly and get really uncomfortable. Egg freezing patients in particular, especially younger patients that have higher egg reserves are more at risk for hyperstimulation syndrome. So it becomes an important thing to kind of work on managing both from my standpoint in terms of protocols and then also just on education and kind of how to do things. So there's things that we can do as fertility specialists in terms of the medications that we give patients to help manage that. Um, for most patients, the good news these days is with the medications that we use, usually while most patients may have some mild hyperstimulation, just bloating, feeling uncomfortable, most patients were able to keep that as a limit um, in, and keep severe hyperstim that we used to see 20 years ago in IVF at bay because it, it can at its, at its worst be concerning, but with modern medications and protocols, we do a lot better with management. Okay, great. How much does health and lifestyle play a role into 
fertility in general and then like prepping for IVF or an egg cycle. Yeah. I it's the foundation. Our our general health and wellness is kind of the foundation of of fertility and our reproduction in general. We know that eggs are affected by like oxidative stress. We know that they they like healthy environments. It's a it's a it's so I, I think healthy eating and exercise and doing all of those kinds of things in terms of keeping cells happy, the eggs like that. I think it's a slippery slope though, because I think also for a lot of patients that are experiencing infertility, infertility is a disease process. And so sometimes I think that my fertility patients will will feel like they need to go beyond to be like baseline healthy and take everything out of diets and change everything and I'm not sure that that alone is enough for patients that are experiencing a disease to fix that. Um, so it's when I'm working with patients, I think it's it's about finding that moderation. And yes, being healthy is always a good foundation for it. But in the same way that in the same way that eating healthy isn't going to keep you from getting cancer. Yeah, I was just going to say right like. It's an important part of the process, and yes, being healthy is going to help you undergo all the kind of medication treatments that you need and everything like that. But it's it's one piece of the puzzle. Yeah, that makes total sense. Where would you recommend, so for people who are interested in learning more about egg freezing or the IVF process or are struggling with fertility in general, are there resources or what should they, because where did, what should they do? There's obviously local fertility centers. We, a lot of us are out there kind of giving information online. Um, ASRM, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, is kind of my governing body. They've got a lot of resources for patients out there. So that that's probably a very like educated place to go look for more information. And so it's ASRM, American okay. Society of Reproductive Medicine. And then if you're choosing to do, this is a personal question. It was very daunting to know how to choose a facility for mm-hmm. the egg freezing process. Do you have any advice of like, how do you know if that's a facility you want to go with or choosing? So, you know, when you're looking for a fertility doctor or a fertility center to work with, I think, you know, you, you want to work with, if something's covered by your insurance, you obviously need to kind of look at that. That can be important. Location, you're going to need to be going to this facility a fair amount. So, you know, kind of where that is compared to where you live and how convenient that is to be able to be going back and forth for ultrasounds and things like that. Having a trust relationship with a physician that you're working with, feeling like you have open communication to be able to kind of discuss what your desires are and feel like you're on the same page with your care team, I think is, is super important. Um, there are, I think when we look at success rates and stuff, you have to be a little bit careful because sometimes fertility centers will like not take care of patients that have poor prognoses and things like that. So that can affect looking at success rates sometimes on a quantitative scale, but you, you want to look at kind of the volume that that place does in terms of egg freezing or IVF and kind of make sure that they're doing a a reasonable number of cycles each year that, that this is something that they actually do. Um, also that you're working with a board certified REI that that we've actually, you know, someone like myself who's done OBGYN and has done fellowship training that is trained to do what we're doing. That's great advice because I I was like just on Google being like egg freezing, not knowing exactly what to search when I was looking. So that's very helpful. Absolutely. Well, this has been enlightening to say the least to learn all about this. Is there anything else the listeners should know? Anything I didn't ask or we didn't ask on the questions we got submitted? I mean, I don't, it's my intention here is, and this is exactly what I felt when I was in, you know, talking about being back in residency is that kind of pit in your stomach feeling where you start to get like, you start to get a little sweaty and you think like, oh my gosh, my fertility is, is, is out there. 
just get more information is, 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 is generally the way to start. And, and if you're concerned about it, if it's something that you're wanting to manage, um, then, then kind of find a physician and go talk to us or, or start with your OBGYN. That's, that's another great way to do it is to start with your OBGYN and, and, and you don't need a referral to see a fertility specialist, but often they have very, we work very closely with local GYNs and stuff. So if you start with them, they'll often have a good recommendation for you. I often talk about fertility and I think this is, this is where I think with what, what you do and what I do, there's some similarities here because we talk, I talk a lot in my practice about kind of the possibility versus probability. And, and when we're talking about managing our fertility, we want to, we want to be in a place where it's not just like, we hope it's possible one day, but that we want to put ourselves in a position where if it's something that we want, we hope it's probable. And what kind of changes can we make in our life to make that more probable? And I think things like egg freezing and, and getting more data is, is all about trying to change the probability to be yep. in our favor so that it's something that you can do. Um, you know, you don't just go buy lottery tickets. You look at saving up your money and, and, and giving yourself a retirement plan so that this can be something that you is more probable, not that you're going to win the lottery tomorrow and just hope that it's possible. Yeah. So getting the data and putting a plan together, just like, like exactly what you said, like with us, like, great. I hope that you hit, I would love to have someone I work with hit the lottery, but let's plan just in case that that doesn't exactly. Happen. And I, I think that's where things are shifting in reproduction and kind of, and I think that's what people are feeling out there by knowing more about reproduction is that women are starting to learn more, be more educated about their, their reproductive lifespan so that we kind of take some of that power and control back. Yeah. Um, and yeah, not education like just, is power. It always is. Yeah, absolutely. The more, which isn't that the show, the more, you know, the more you know. The more yeah, you know. It's like PBS. I don't know where yeah. we are. We're not, that's not our catchphrase. I just said it. <laughs> well, this is so helpful. Um, I'm really excited for this episode to air. And real quick, where can everyone find you? Yeah. So uh, in practice, I'm in Indiana, Indiana Fertility Institute, but on, on social media, I am Meredith Provost MD um, on both um, Instagram and on TikTok. And you will have to check her out on TikTok because she has quite the following on there. <laughs> so thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you, Barbara. This has been awesome. And for all of our lovely listeners, you can check us out on Instagram, Future Rich Podcast, and on our website, which is offering free online personal finance classes in partnership with SUNY Ulster at www.futurerichpodcast.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious 
serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. 